Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the third psalm, uh, which is page 543 in the Church Bibles and 841 in the Large Print Bibles, uh, what we're going to do uh, to begin with is to read the psalm together uh, as a congregation. So the words are going to be on the screen, uh, so we've all got the same uh, words that we're saying. Um, and then they'll go off the screen so you can use your own Bibles to follow along with the sermon. Uh, so let's read together uh, the, third, the third psalm. Just remain seated uh, as we do this together. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. This is God's word. And I've called uh, this sermon on uh, Psalm 3, Confidence in Crisis. Confidence in Crisis. So in our uh, journey through the Psalms, we've looked at Psalms 1 and 2, which were the entrance points uh, to the Psalter. If you remember, we said that on the the first two Psalms uh, hang the gateway through which we come into the the Psalter. And so this evening, I can say welcome uh, to the Psalms. Uh, We are in now the place of worship, the place where we can sing these songs together as God's people Uh, having put our trust in Jesus, the anointed one of Psalm 2, who has been revealed to us through the word of God in Psalm 1. And we begin tonight then the first act in this musical, which speaks of the rise of King David. However, notice in the the superscription, which is the, the bit at the top of the psalm, it tells us that this takes place Uh, It's a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom, which happened while David was king of Israel. Uh, It was David's darkest hour. And because this book, book one of the Psalms, focuses much on the suffering of David, we find ourselves here flashing forward to a time when David suffered most. It's a bit like in a movie when the beginning of the film is a focus on a key moment in the life of the character, where the film kind of leads up to that point. And here, in order for the audience to know a a key aspect of the life of David, his suffering, we see David in what is his darkest hour, the darkest hour of his life to introduce us to this theme of, of the suffering of God's anointed one. And in order to understand the psalm more fully, it's worth understanding what happened. 
Now, I was going to do a Bible reading of this, but then when I saw how long 2 Samuel 14 to 19 is, I thought it'd be easier perhaps just to do a quick run through of what happens to David when he's fleeing from his son Absalom. So this crisis occurs after David has committed adultery with Bathsheba and murders her husband. And you may remember from the Bible reading that David was told by Nathan that because of this sin, the consequences would be that within his household, there would be strife. His children would be fighting against one another. And not long after 2 Samuel 12, we come to a point where David's eldest son, Amnon, rapes his sister Tamar. And David does nothing really about it. And so David's next oldest son, Absalom, kills his elder brother, Amnon. And because Absalom has killed his brother, Absalom is forced into exile. But whilst in exile, Absalom seeks the kingdom for himself and he leads a revolt against his father, King David. And during this revolt, David is forced to flee Jerusalem for his life as thousands join this revolt, and Absalom wants David, his father, dead. And Absalom secures the services of a man named Ahithophel, the number one intellect in the country. But David prays that God would frustrate his counsel. Ahithophel recommends Absalom takes David's harem and rape his wives on the roof of the palace where everyone could see. And Absalom steals the hearts of the people. He lies about his father and he makes promises about what he would do as king. This is a crisis. This is an awful situation for David to find himself in. And it's this situation when David was fleeing from Absalom that we get the context of where he is in Psalm 3. The psalm was written during this time of crisis. And some of you know the kind of anguish that is going on here, the betrayal of someone close to you, even a child, even a child. This is, this is David's worst moment. This is his, his darkest hour. And some of us understand what it's like to be in those, those dark places. And this psalm shows us how to have confidence in crisis, even the worst kind. We see also in the, in the superscription that this is a psalm of David. Uh, confusingly, by the way, the word psalm in that superscription is different from the word for the book of Psalms. Uh, there, in the book of Psalms, it means praises, but here it means just a song that's set to music. And so this is a song that was sung by God's people in worship, especially during times of crisis. And in the psalm, we see three movements. First of all, we see David's crisis. Then we move on to David's confidence. And then finally, we see David's cry. So first of all, David's crisis in verses 1 and 2. First of all, note in verse 1 at the very beginning who David goes to in his crisis. It begins with Lord. This is his God. Lord 
is the personal name of God for his people. And so it's the God with whom David has a relationship with. The God who has made a covenant with David. That David will have a king on his throne from his line forever. A relationship that's based on that very covenant, the promise of God. And in David's crisis, he turns to the Lord. To the Lord. He doesn't go to YouTube. He doesn't go to some spiritual guru or find the answer in the newspaper. He turns to the Lord in his crisis. And notice the crisis in verse 1 is very severe. There's the repetition in verse 1 and 2 of many, the word many, three times. You notice that? Many rise up against me. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him at the very beginning. Many are my foes. Many, many, many. David is surrounded. It is frightening. It is worrying. There is a threefold outcry of many. So the first many, we see who they are. Who they are. How many are my foes? Do you see that in verse 1? How many are my foes? There There are foes. There are enemies. Absalom. He had Ahithophel. He had masses of people whose hearts were with his son. And we read in 2 Samuel 17 that 12,000 men with Absalom were ready to march against King David. Many were his foes. So the foes are many. That's who they are. But secondly, notice what the foes are doing. They are rising up against him. They're rising up against him. Now, sometimes we can feel this kind of, of, uh, of, 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 of tension in our crises, can't we, where many problems seem to assail us from every side. Do you ever feel like sometimes a problem never just comes on its own? It tends to come in many ways and many different things at the same time. There are many things that we can be worried about, many things that agitate us, and our world seems to be in a state of a word I didn't know was a word until recently, of permacrisis. Have you ever heard that word in the news recently? Permacrisis. There's always something terrible going on all the time, moving from one crisis to the next, one coming straight after or during another. We can feel that way, but as well as as feeling like this, it is true that sometimes we are surrounded by many foes. There are Christians in war-torn nations, Christians in nations which persecute God's people. There are health problems that can be very concerning or seem to come just one after the other. There are family problems, fallings out, the burden of caring for loved ones that can make us feel like everything is against us and we can feel like we are surrounded by many foes and they're all rising up against me. Now all of us have been or will go through, no doubt, times of of crisis. But this crisis in particular is exacerbated by the third outcry. We've seen who they are, the foes. We've seen what they are doing, rising up. But thirdly, we see what they are saying. Notice in verse 2, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Now perhaps the foes were questioning God's power to save Perhaps they were telling David that God didn't really love him or care for him. But most likely something else was going on. 
When David was fleeing Jerusalem, a man named Shimei cursed him. And in 2 Samuel 16 verse 8, this is what Shimei was saying or cursing him with. The Lord has given the kingdom to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. David was being told, you're in this crisis, David, and it's your fault, and you're not going to be delivered because you're a murderer. You are too bad for God. You're being punished, David. You're done for. But God had made a covenant with David. David would reign. David was not going to be usurped if God was going to keep his covenant. But he was being told, God's done with you. Now, as Christians, we may suffer and do consequences of our actions like David does here, but that never means that God is finished with us as his people. Jesus was punished for our sin. We are not done for even when we've blown it if we come to God in repentance. Now, we can feel or even we can be told, you, you, you're not a real Christian, God won't save you. Sometimes uh, we have that voice in, our, in us, don't we, saying, you've really done it this time. There's no way. There's no way back. But God's covenant is with us. He's promised us that, that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all of our sin. And no matter what we've done, no matter how much we've blown it, we can come to God and we can be forgiven. You cannot be too bad for God. Interestingly, you, you can be too good. <laughs> in the sense that you can think you're too good. But when you realize you've, you've blown it, when you come to Jesus and seek his forgiveness, God will deliver you from your sin. And so Christian, when you have messed up and you've repented of your sin, and even when there are consequences for what you have done, God will save you from the judgment of your sin. Jesus has died for you. Don't let the enemy or anyone else tell you God will not deliver you. And in fact, Jesus suffered in the same way. As with all the Psalms, they are about and were sung by him. The trial of Jesus was his, his, his trial and crucifixion. That was his big crisis. This kind of crisis that David had was just a foreshadowing of this great crisis that Jesus faces. And he had many foes, didn't he? The religious leaders, the crowd, Pilate, Herod, Judas, surrounding him. And they rose up against him. They nailed him to the cross. And what did they say to our Lord Jesus? He saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. I don't know what I meant. And, and we will believe in him. Do you see? They were mocking him. Do you see what they were saying? God won't deliver him. You see, Jesus fully understands what we go through. He understands crisis. This psalm is about him. And the big question of the psalm at this point then is this. Will God, will God deliver his king? Will God deliver his king? Are the taunts of verse 2, God will not deliver him, are they true? Well, certainly David does not think so. Why? 
Because in verses 3 to 6, we see David's confidence. Notice verse 3 begins with, but there is something else to, to put in the picture of his crisis. When David's in crisis, he turns his focus from the crisis to the Lord. He says, but you, Lord, you, Lord. So he's gone from the crisis to looking to the Lord, you, Lord. David shows three truths in verse 3 that counter the three many's of verses 1 and 2. So verses 1 and 2, many, many, many. But David says, God is my shield, my glory, and the lifter of my head. So first of all, he is a shield around me. Now we're, we're familiar, aren't we, with the concept of a shield. So you've got this shield and it it absorbs the blows of what the enemy are firing at you. But the thing with a shield is you, you put the shield at a part of your body that you need protecting. So you might cover your face, you might cover your front or your side, you might, if you can, like you know, cover your back or something like that. But what the, a, a normal shield, the kind of shield that's talked about here, uh, what happens is it covers just one part of your body. But notice what David says here, that David's God is a shield around him. God protects David on every side. It's like a, a force field, if you like. It speaks of complete protection from every single side. So it's more than a shield just in front or just to the side. It's a shield around him. Secondly, God is David's glory. At this point in David's crisis, he's facing shame and humiliation. He is, if you like, inglorious, but that is only true of his own glory. But the Lord is his glory. David is not honored by his own greatness or his own achievements. His honor is to be known and chosen by the Lord. He glorifies the Lord, the one whose glory never changes. And so for us, when we can be humiliated ourselves. Our reputation can be maligned, but it's the Lord who is our glory, and he, his glory never changes. And thirdly, for David, God is the one who lifts his head high. We looked at this verse at the anniversary yesterday, but on another side to it, when, the, when, the, when a king opposed someone in the Bible, we read of the king's foot being on the neck of the enemy. So if someone's an enemy, the king wants to put his foot on their neck to keep them down, to subjugate them. But when a king favors someone, he lifts his head so that the person can look at the king and be favored by the king and have relationship with the king. And when you come to uh, our God and king, our head is bowed low because of our sin, but God, the one who forgives our sin, lifts our head so that we don't need to be ashamed in his presence and we can face him and face our enemies. If we're standing on God's promises, then in a sense, we can hold our head high. And in, in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 30, notice how David flees Jerusalem. It says, But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, his head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads 
and were weeping as they went up. And so their heads were down as they, in shame and humiliation, walked out of Jerusalem. But David remembered, but God's the one who lifts my head high. And because of that, David here is confident of his vindication in the future. His head was low because of what had happened to him, but his status before God is always secure. His head is lifted high, even when physically it's low. How could David be sure of this? Because of the covenant God had made with him. It'll be okay. David's secure in his relationship with God. And that's true of every believer as well. Every one of us who are followers of Jesus, who've had our sins forgiven, in the end, Jesus wins. Even when we've been humiliated and shamed and maligned, Jesus is the king who is victorious. In verse 3, David responds to his crisis by focusing on his Lord. And that's the first point of application for us. When we are in crisis, where is the temptation to focus our attention? Isn't it on the crisis? When we're in crisis, isn't the the temptation to just be looking around us at all the things that are going wrong. But our first focus should be to turn towards the Lord, to look at God, to meditate on him in his word, thinking over who he is and what he has done. And so yesterday, for example, we looked at Psalm 103 and we meditated on all his benefits And David is doing the same thing. He's reminding himself of who this covenant God is. God is, he's my shield. He's he's my glory. He's the, the one who lifts my head high. He reminds himself of this and meditates upon it. And when he does that, he focuses on who his God is and what his God has done. It changes his behavior. So notice there's a a transition in verse 3 from, but you, Lord, and then in verse 4 down to verse 6, there are a lot of eyes. So he goes from you, Lord, to what happens to him next. And we see four effects of him looking at the Lord. Number one, I call out to the Lord. Number two, I lie down and sleep. Number three, I wake up again. Number four, I will not fear. So he looks at his God. He sees this God is awesome. He sees what this God has done for him. And then he does four things. Number one, in verse four, he prays. I call out to the Lord. He calls out to the Lord and he receives an answer. His his calling out is a a cry of the heart. Interestingly, when David fled Jerusalem, he ensured that the Ark of the Covenant was sent back to Jerusalem where it belonged. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God among his people. And since David fled Jerusalem, God seemed far away in Jerusalem. But notice that when David prays, where does God answer him from? his holy mountain, his dwelling place from Jerusalem. So it doesn't matter that God was far away from David. From where God is, God comes and he answers David's cry. David was confident because God had answered him before that God would continue to answer him again. And so he cries out to God. God answered David 
in David's prayer before, and so David prays again. And it's interesting that the first thing David does after he looks at who God is in his crisis is he prays. Do you notice that? He prays. We heard this yesterday again uh, from uh, when we look at the book um, of the history of the church. What did the church do when they, they saw the need around them? They, they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. The response to the need was prayer. And it's the same for us today, isn't it? Not just in, in personal crises, but in the, in, the, in the great crisis of a lost people wandering away from God, we should be praying, shouldn't we? We should be praying. So the first thing, when, when, and that's in, what's the other, the other thing, with, when David sees God, he recognizes who he is, he's convicted to pray. There's a, a conviction that comes from seeing the greatness of God. It leads to prayer. So that's the first thing. The second effect of his understanding of God is that he sleeps. Now this sounds much easier than praying, doesn't it? Uh, but in verse 5, uh, the sleeping, lying down and sleeping, is a, an act of trust. Lying down and going to sleep in a crisis is not an easy thing. Uh, many of us know the, what it's like to be lying awake in bed at night worrying thinking over all that's going on and worrying, how are we going to deal with this? But David has looked at God, he's prayed, and now he can go to sleep. He has meditated on God's character, he's handed it over to God, and he lies down. Uh, one uh, writer says that prayer is good preparation for sleep. Not, not prayer meetings, but prayer is good preparation for sleep. It's good to pray before we go to bed, to give to God the, the worries of the day and the worries of the day ahead and say, Lord, this is, this, is, this is what's on my heart. I'm crying out to you, and we go to sleep. And after, after the prayer, David lies down. He lies down. There's a purposefulness there, isn't there? And God gives him sleep. There's a, a calm trust one which, by the way, we see in Jesus. When was Jesus' most famous, famous sleep? It wasn't in the manger. It was in the boat in the storm. Jesus slept when chaos was around him because he trusted his Father. And in the second half of verse 5, the third thing he does is he wakes up again. Again, this can be hard for some of us. But he does. Why? Because the Lord sustains him. You know, when we are asleep... We are not in control, are we? And sometimes that's why some people struggle to sleep, because they like to be in control. But God doesn't sleep. God continually watches over his people. And David's enemies at this point were surrounding him. They wanted him dead. They could get him really at any moment. But David goes to sleep, and then he wakes up again, and he's like, Lord, they haven't killed me. I'm still alive. He knows that God sustains him. You know, every time we wake up in the morning, we should thank God that we are awake in the morning, that God has given us a new day to use for his glory. We can wake again because the Lord sustains us. And the final act after his meditation on the Lord was to say this in verse 6, I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. So he, he prays, he sleeps, he wakes, 
I will not fear, is the fourth. I will not fear. Now, literally, there were tens of thousands, an army waiting to go and attack him, but David didn't fear. Why? Because of the truth he realized in verse 3. If God is my shield, if God is my glory, if God is the one who lifts my head, if God is the one that I can cry out to, if God is the one that can give me sleep, if God is the one that wakes me up again, why should I fear the enemies that are surrounding me? God is, is greater than your enemies. And so David has a resolve not to fear. He appropriates the truth that he confesses in verse 3. So how can we have confidence in the midst of crisis? We meditate on the Lord. He is our shield, our glory, the one who lifts our head high. He's, he's your Christian. He's your shield. He's your glory. He's the one that lifts your head high. We meditate on those wonderful truths. And by the way, Psalm 3 verse 3 is just one verse. I mean, you can just open up this Bible and they're everywhere. Multiple truths of how wonderful and great God is. We, we meditate on those. In the words of Psalm 1, we delight in them. And then we're convicted and convinced that they are true. And we pray. And we pray. And we pray. And then we sleep. And we wake and we resolve not to fear, but to trust our Heavenly Father. And we can have more confidence than David because the thing that we can look to is Jesus Christ, who after dying for our sins, rose from the dead. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, which he absolutely did, then brothers and sisters, it will be okay. He's alive. And it's the truth of the resurrection that gave the apostles the confidence that they had to share Jesus with the world. So we meditate on God and then we act in faith. So we've seen David's crisis. We've seen David's confidence. And in verses 7 to 8, we see David's cry. The, the cry is the petition in this psalm. It's what David is praying for, what he's asking for. And David asks in verse 7, the Lord to arise. That's a military term, asking God to fight on behalf of his people. In fact, it's a cry that Moses used when Israel went out into battle. So Numbers chapter 10 and verses 35 and 36 reads this, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, rise up, Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. And whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. And this rise up, Lord, is what David is really saying to God in prayer. But also verse 7 reverses in prayer what's going on in verse 1. Many foes are rising up, but David prays, Arise, Lord. God will not deliver him, they say, but David is praying, deliver me, my God. And in the second half of verse 7, we read what David wanted God to do in this deliverance. Or what this deliverance would look like. So look with me at verse 7. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Now to strike an enemy on the jaw 
was to grossly humiliate them. Uh, the, it, today, it would be like a slap in the... If I came in... I'm not going to, but if I came in, you'd be really glad to know. Slap you in the face. It's not just something that's physically painful. It's uh, a humiliation, isn't it? To strike the face is a humiliating thing. And the same thing in this verse. To, to strike them on the jaw is to humiliate them. Here's the point. It affects their pride. It's to, to remove their pride, to bring them low, strike them on the jaw. It affects their pride. But to break the teeth of the wicked means the wicked is being described like a fanged lion, a lion who's with sharp teeth. Their enemies are kind of prowling around, waiting to devour David. And to, to break their teeth means to render them powerless. It affects their power. Also, interestingly, likely it means it affects their speech. So they're saying to David, God will not deliver you. And David's saying, Lord, will you shut them up? So the request here is bring down their pride and remove their power. That's the point of these verses. Strike them on the jaw, their pride, break the teeth of the wicked, their power. And so David is praying that God would destroy both the pride and the power of the foes that are rising up against him. Now, at this, at this point, it's worth asking this question, I think. Can and should we then pray these words today? Now, words like this are very common in the Psalter. In fact, these words in Psalm 3 are mild compared to some. And I'll say more on the subject as we go through the Psalter. But in short, yes, we can pray them. But more than that, yes, we should pray them. David's not here praying against someone who is mildly irritating. He's praying against someone who's trying to bring down the Messiah, the Lord's anointed king, against one who is committing gross evil. I told you the story of what was going on in the kingdom at the time. It was gross evil. And as Christians, we should desire to see evil ended and justice applied. And we should, therefore, pray the words of verse three, of Psalm 3, verse 7. In the membership of this church, we have brothers and sisters who are refugees from Ukraine and Iraq and Iran and, and Hong Kong, all of whom have had to, to flee homes because of evil perpetrated in their lands and in some cases against them personally because they are Christians and those enemies are real. Should we not pray and should they not be able to pray that God would remove the pride and the power of these wicked people? Of course we should pray. Of course we should pray. Even in our own nation, even in this village, there is much wickedness and injustice. There is abuse of children of the elderly, of the poor and the vulnerable? Should we not pray that God would bring down the pride and the power of those who are doing these things? Of course we should. In our nation, there are millions of unborn children being murdered with no voice of their own. Should we not pray? Should we not pray that God would bring down their pride and break the teeth of the wicked? Yes, yes we should. 
And if we're uncomfortable with these kinds of prayers, it may be a sign that we ourselves are too comfortable or at least have not looked around our world. So this is not a desire for, for kind of personal vengeance, but it's a cry for righteousness and for justice and ultimately for God's kingdom to come. And in verse 8, we see a, a confident declaration from David. From the Lord comes deliverance. From the Lord comes deliverance. It's interesting to note that deliverance in the Hebrew is the word, really, that's Joshua, the Hebrew name of Jesus. And the answer to the big question of this psalm, will God deliver, is yes. Yes, he will. And there are three ways, I think, that God answers the prayer of verse 7 to strike them on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked and to deliver. Three, three ways that, that God can and does answer this prayer. First of all, God may, he may answer this prayer by delivering in the immediate term. He may bring an end to a certain evil that we're praying against right now. So for an example of that in history, uh, during the Second World War, we, we saw the, the evil of the Holocaust going on, a great evil. And I've no doubt that there were Christians and even non-Christians praying words like we read in Psalm 3. And what, did, what happened? That regime was brought down, their pride was brought down, and their power was removed. God delivered. So sometimes we see deliverance straight away, or even in the medium term. That's one way God delivers. Here's the second way, which maybe is even more, uh, is more troubling. God may deliver by saving our enemies. A wicked ruler may come to faith. In the Bible, uh, King Manasseh and even Nebuchadnezzar confessed faith in God, in the Lord, after much wickedness. Even fraudsters and murderers and abusers can come and have come to faith in Jesus. And that may be difficult for some of us to process. But when someone becomes a believer in Jesus, they are a new creation. And so the old person is dead and the new person has been born. And justice is done because Jesus has paid the price for sin. But sometimes... Deliverance doesn't come. My health doesn't get better. The war is lost. Our reputation or our job is gone. The cancer returns. Our loved one dies. Our children don't know the Lord. What then? Can we truly say deliverance comes from the Lord? Yes, because the third way that deliverance comes from the Lord is that there is a final deliverance for all of God's people. The judgment day and the new creation that's coming is the day of final and full deliverance for all of the people of God. On that day, all wrongs will be made right. 
there will be no more suffering for God's people. Yes, God delivers. No one can ever say of any of God's people, God will not deliver him, for God will. And in fact, God did deliver King David in the story uh, that this psalm is based on. The end of the story is that David, as he flees Jerusalem, meets a number of people who help him and become kind of spies in Absalom's camp. And those spies uh, undermine Absalom. They help David. And David ends up winning the battle and is put back on his throne where he belongs. Absalom dies. David returns to Jerusalem. And God keeps his promise of having him on his throne. But King David is pointing forward to a greater king who brings a greater deliverance. Because Jesus, as we've seen, had his crisis. Like David, Jesus was led out of Jerusalem because of his enemies, where he was killed, unlike David. But Jesus showed his confidence in his father. He, he walked uh, when he was on earth through hostile crowds. He slept in the storm. He prayed, not my will, but yours be done, knowing that the will of his father was best. He did not fear when faced with enemies on all sides who assailed him, and they nailed him to the cross. For our wickedness, he was struck on the jaw. And he laid aside his power. His pride and power was brought to nothing as he was poured out in a humiliating death because of our wickedness. He was and is our shield who absorbed God's wrath for us. But God delivered him, didn't he? On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and it is through him that the end of Psalm 3 is fulfilled. God's blessing is on all his people through Jesus. Jesus is our shield. Jesus is our glory. Jesus is the lifter of our heads. Jesus brings us salvation in its fullest sense. We are reconciled to God and to each other. And the gospel is the only hope for a world in which there is much wickedness. And as God's people today, we, we will go through crisis. And for some of us, of the most severe kinds. But because Jesus has risen from the dead, we can go into those crises with confidence that in the very end, it will be okay. Because Jesus wins. And blessing will always be on his people. Well, we're going to pray, uh, and then we're going to sing. So let me just pray. Father, we, we come to you and ask that you would show us clearly that you are our shield, our glory, and the one who lifts our head high. And we thank you that Jesus is the one who delivers us, that he took the wrath upon himself that we deserve so that we can be delivered from hell and given life in heaven forever. And give us, Lord, confidence in you as we meditate on these truths. And as we come to the, 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 the supper in just a moment, and we look again at what Jesus has done on the cross, may again it give us confidence. But Lord, we do want to pray for those who are suffering who are your people, 
In different places in the world, we, we think of those in our church who have fled those places and whose families are suffering. And we pray, Lord, that you would strike those enemies on the jaw and that you would break the teeth of the wicked and bring justice for our brothers and sisters. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, appropriately, we're going to stand and sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Uh, David turned his eyes to his Lord. And that's what we're going to do now in song before we come to uh, the Lord's table. So let's stand and let's sing together. <laughs> 